Hello and welcome to the January 2013 Respiratory Care Journal Podcast. This is a stimulating time for the journal. I have just finished my fifth year as editor and I could not be more excited about the current state of the journal. If you have not already noticed, we have a new journal website. Please take a look at www.rcjournal.com. As you explore our new site, I think you will agree that the journal has really come of age. We begin the year 2013 with the proceedings of the 50th Respiratory Care Journal Conference. It is fitting that the topic of oxygen was selected for the 50th conference as there is probably no other subject as fundamental and important for the readers of respiratory care. We are grateful to John Hefner and Richard Branson for co-chairing this conference. Sarah, let's get started. Our first paper is The Story of Oxygen and is written by conference co-chair John Hefner. The history of oxygen from discovery to clinical application for patients with chronic lung disease represents a long and storied journey. Within a relatively short period, early investigators not only discovered oxygen, but also recognized its importance to life and its role in respiration. The application of oxygen to chronic lung disease, however, took several centuries. In the modern era, physiologists pursued the chemical nature of oxygen and its physiologic interaction with cellular metabolism and gas transport. It took brazen clinicians, however, to pursue oxygen as a therapeutic resource for patients with chronic lung disease because of the concern in the 20th century of the risks of oxygen toxicity. Application of ambulatory oxygen devices allowed landmark investigations of the long-term effects of continuous oxygen that established its safety and efficacy. Although now well established for hypoxic patients, many questions remain regarding the benefits of oxygen for varying severity and types of chronic lung disease. This paper is a very nice history of oxygen as a therapeutic agent. Over the course of a few hundred years, this story evolved from the discovery that oxygen is important to life to its everyday use to treat lung diseases. Today, we do not appreciate how bold was the early work that pursued oxygen as a therapeutic option. This paper nicely covers evolution and practice that led to today's central role for oxygen in the care of patients with hypoxemia. Supplemental Oxygen Needs During Sleep, Who Benefits, is by Owens. The physiologic changes that occur in ventilation during sleep contribute to nocturnal oxygen desaturation in those with lung disease. Nocturnal supplemental oxygen is often used as therapy, although convincing data exist only for those who are hypoxemic both during sleep and wakefulness. Ongoing trials may help address whether oxygen should be used in those with only desaturation during sleep. If used, oxygen should be dosed as needed, and patients should be monitored for hypercapnia. Because of its prevalence, obstructive sleep apnea may commonly overlap with lung disease in many patients and has important consequences. Patients with overlap syndromes may be good candidates for non-invasive ventilation during sleep. 
Owens addresses the issues related to supplemental oxygen during sleep. It is important to note that nocturnal supplemental oxygen is often used as therapy, although convincing data exist only for those who are hypoxemic during both sleep and awake. Owens also makes the very important point that, if nocturnal oxygen is used, it should be dosed as needed. It is also important to appreciate that obstructive sleep apnea may overlap with lung disease, and patients with overlap syndromes are candidates for non-invasive ventilation during sleep. Next, we have the paper by Kreiner, Ambulatory Home Oxygen, What is the Evidence for Benefit and Who Does It Help? The beneficial effects of ambulatory home oxygen have been demonstrated since the 1950s when Coates and Gibson gave oxygen to ambulatory COPD patients from small portable high-pressure cylinders in the United Kingdom. Over the ensuing seven decades, oxygen has been prescribed to millions of COPD patients in the home setting. Additionally, it is common clinical practice to prescribe supplemental oxygen when chronic hypoxemic respiratory failure, not due to COPD, is present or in patients with hypoxemia at hospital discharge following flares of their underlying chronic respiratory disorder without any substantial evidence. Despite the importance of long-term oxygen therapy in clinical home management, there are many gaps in our current knowledge regarding its mechanisms of action, indications for prescription, and its effects on important patient outcomes. Research conducted in the 1970s and 1980s still provides the basis for clinical decision-making and insurance coverage policies regarding long-term oxygen administration. Remarkably, little current research is being conducted to extend our knowledge regarding the indications, mechanisms, and benefits of long-term oxygen therapy. This review will focus on our current knowledge of the endpoints for supplemental oxygen at home, such as mortality, effect on functional performance, sensation of dyspnea, cognitive function, and quality of life, and highlight areas where future research is needed. It is impressive to realize that oxygen has been prescribed to millions of patients with COPD in the home setting. It is also commonly prescribed for chronic hypoxemic respiratory failure not due to COPD or in patients with hypoxemia at hospital discharge. However, there continues to be much misunderstanding about the appropriate role of oxygen in non-hospitalized patients. Despite the importance of long-term oxygen therapy, there remain many gaps in our current knowledge of this therapy, leaving many opportunities for future research. The paper, Options for Home Oxygen Therapy Equipment, Storage and Metering of Oxygen in the Home, is by McCoy. Home oxygen therapy equipment options have increased over the past several decades in response to innovations in technology, economic pressure from third-party payers, and patient demands. The delivery of oxygen in the home has evolved from packaged gas systems containing 99% USP oxygen provided by continuous flow delivery to intermittent flow delivery with oxygen concentrators delivering less than 99% oxygen purity.
The majority of published articles indicating the value of long-term oxygen therapy have been based on continuous flow delivery of 99% USP oxygen. The lack of research on new home oxygen therapy devices requires more clinical involvement from physician and respiratory therapists to evaluate the performance of oxygen devices used in the home to ensure the patient is provided adequate oxygenation at all activity levels. New standards of care are required to address the need to have consistent titration of long-term oxygen therapy to meet the patient's home needs. Consistent labeling of metering devices on home oxygen equipment will need to be developed by professional medical societies to be implemented by standards organizations that direct the industrial manufacturers. Home oxygen therapy will need professionally trained respiratory therapists reimbursed for skills and services to ensure that patients receive optimal benefits from home oxygen equipment to improve patient outcomes and prevent complications and associated cost. As discussed by McCoy, home oxygen therapy equipment options have increased over the past several decades. Unfortunately, there are also many gaps in knowledge related to the clinical use of these devices. I agree that standards are required to address the need to have consistent titration of long-term oxygen therapy to meet the patient's home needs at all activity levels. Also important is consistent labeling of metering devices on home oxygen equipment to be implemented by standards organizations that direct manufacturers. Much confusion is present because of inconsistency in the labeling of these devices. Oxygen use in pre-hospital care is aimed at treating or preventing hypoxemia. This is addressed in the paper Pre-Hospital Oxygen Therapy by Branson and Johannigman. However, excess oxygen delivery has important consequences in select patients, and hyperoxia can adversely impact outcomes. The unique environment of pre-hospital care poses logistical and educational challenges. Oxygen therapy in pre-hospital care should be provided to patients with hypoxemia and titrated to achieve normoxia. Changes to the current practice of oxygen delivery in pre-hospital care are needed. Although oxygen use in pre-hospital care is aimed at treating or preventing hypoxemia, hyperoxia can adversely impact patient outcome. This is an important consideration as a more is better approach is taken by many pre-hospital providers. As pointed out in this paper, the unique environment of pre-hospital care also poses logistical and educational challenges related to oxygen delivery. Calais and Mathe address an important issue in their paper, hyperoxic acute lung injury. Prolonged breathing with a very high FiO2 uniformly causes severe hyperoxic acute lung injury and, without a reduction of FiO2, is usually fatal. The severity of hyperoxic acute lung injury is directly proportional to PO2 and exposure duration.
Hyperoxia produces extraordinary amounts of reactive oxygen species that overwhelms natural antioxidant defenses and destroys cellular structures through several pathways. Genetic predisposition has been shown to play an important role in hyperoxic acute lung injury among animals, and some genetics-based epidemiologic research suggests that it may be true for humans as well. Clinically, the risk of hyperoxic acute lung injury likely occurs when FiO2 exceeds 0.7 and may become problematic when FiO2 exceeds 0.8 for an extended period of time. Both high-stretch mechanical ventilation and hyperoxia potentiate lung injury and may promote pulmonary infection. During the 1960s, confusion regarding the incidence and relevance of hyperoxic acute lung injury largely reflected such issues as the primitive control of FiO2, the absence of PEEP, and the fact that at the time both acute lung injury and ventilator-induced lung injury were unknown. The advent of PEEP and precise control over FiO2, as well as lung protective ventilation and other adjunctive therapies for severe hypoxemia, has greatly reduced the risk of hyperoxic acute lung injury for the vast majority of patients requiring mechanical ventilation in the 21st century. However, a subset of patients with very severe ARDS requiring hyperoxic therapy is at substantial risk for developing hyperoxic acute lung injury therefore justifying the use of such adjunctive therapies. As discussed by Calais and Mathe, prolonged breathing of very high FiO2 has the potential to cause severe hyperoxic acute lung injury. The severity of hyperoxic lung injury is related to PaO2 and exposure duration. Thus, it is important for clinicians to use the lowest FiO2 possible and avoid exposing the patient to hyperoxic lung injury. High flow oxygen administration by nasal cannula for adult and perinatal patients is by Jeffrey Ward. The nasal cannula has been a commonly used patient interface to provide supplemental oxygen since its introduction in the 1940s. Traditionally, it has been categorized as a low flow device and capable of delivering 40% oxygen with flows up to 6 liters per minute for adults with normal minute ventilation. However, there is considerable performance variability among patients and design, which result in an exponential decline in delivered FiO2 as breathing frequencies increase. The nasal cannula has also been successfully adapted for use in perinatal and pediatric respiratory care. Flows are reduced in the range of 0.25 for 1 liter per minute due to the smaller minute volumes. In the early 2000s, high-flow nasal cannula oxygen therapy was introduced, accompanied by heated humidification systems to prevent the associated drying of upper airway mucosa and to increase patient comfort. Therapeutic flows for adults were in the 15 to 40 liters per minute range. FiO2 could be independently adjusted with air-oxygen blending. The high-flow nasal cannula has also found additional clinical application in perinatal care as a delivery system with flows greater than 2 liters per minute could create a distending pressure similar to nasal CPAP.
There is a small but growing body of information from clinical trials that supports use of high-flow nasal cannula as an alternative oxygen interface for adults who present with moderate hypoxemia that persists after receiving oxygen by reservoir bag masks or similar therapy. Clinical observations report greater patient acceptance and comfort versus the oxygen masks. High-flow nasal cannula therapy has also been considered valuable in perinatal care in treating the respiratory distress syndrome or supporting patients after extubation similar to nasal CPAP. At present, research-based evidence for the role of high-flow nasal cannula for its perinatal applications remains unclear. The nasal cannula is a commonly used interface to provide supplemental oxygen. As addressed by Ward, for many years the nasal cannula has been successfully used in adults, children, and neonates. In the 21st century, high-flow nasal cannula oxygen therapy with heated humidification was introduced. Although clinical observations report greater patient acceptance and comfort versus oxygen mask, much remains to be learned about this therapy. Next, we have the paper, Supporting Oxygenation in Acute Respiratory Failure by McIntyre. Strategies to support oxygenation can cause substantial harm through lung stretch injury, oxygen toxicity, transfusion risks, and cardiac overstimulation. Traditional goals of maintaining near-normal cardiorespiratory parameters are likely overly simplistic and are insensitive and nonspecific for tissue hypoxic effects. In order to reduce iatrogenic harm, it is conceivable that clinicians could be comfortable with lower levels of arterial oxygen content, provided that there are ways to effectively monitor tissue hypoxia. We can learn more about hypoxic compensatory mechanisms from the fetus and from high-altitude residents. We also need to learn better ways of monitoring tissue oxygenation, especially in critical tissues. Ultimately, clinical trials will be needed to determine appropriate oxygenation targets to allow permissive hypoxemia. Strategies to support oxygenation can cause substantial harm through lung stretch injury, oxygen toxicity, transfusion risks, and cardiac overstimulation. This is of interest to consider, coupled with the previous paper by Calais. The role of hypoxic compensatory mechanisms is illustrated by fetal physiology and from high-altitude residents. In order to reduce iatrogenic harm, it may be important for clinicians to become comfortable with permissive hypoxemia. Lacking in current practice, however, is a good way of monitoring oxygenation in critical tissues. Automated Closed-Loop Control of Inspired Oxygen Concentration is by Clare and Boncolari. Oxygen therapy is extensively used in premature infants and adults with respiratory insufficiency. In the premature infant, the goal during manual control of the FiO2 is to maintain adequate oxygenation and minimize the exposure to hypoxemia, hyperoxemia, and oxygen. However, this is frequently not achieved during routine care, which increases the risks of associated side effects affecting the eye, lungs, and central nervous system. In the adult, the primary goal is to avoid hypoxemia, but conventional methods of oxygen supplementation may fall short during periods of increased demand. 
On the other hand, there are growing concerns related to unnecessarily high FiO2 levels that increase the exposure to hyperoxemia and excessive oxygen use in settings where resources are limited. Systems for automated closed-loop control of FiO2 have been developed for use in neonates and in adults. It is an interesting observation that, although the goal of FiO2 control is to maintain adequate oxygenation and to minimize hypoxemia and hyperoxemia in the premature infant, in the adult the primary goal is to prevent hypoxemia. In infants and adults, there are growing concerns related to unnecessarily high FiO2 levels that increase the exposure to hyperoxemia. There are also concerns about excessive oxygen use in settings where resources are limited. As described in this paper, systems for automated closed-loop control of FiO2 have been developed for use in neonates and adults. However, such systems have not yet reached everyday practice. Next is the paper, Targeting Brain Tissue Oxygenation in Traumatic Brain Injury, by Martini and colleagues. The management of patients with traumatic brain injury has evolved in the last several years due to the introduction of new, invasive monitoring devices. The ability to monitor parameters other than measurements related to pressures has generated substantial interest. Brain tissue oxygenation monitoring has been consistently shown to provide prognostic information, as indicated by poor prognosis associated with low brain tissue oxygen values. Furthermore, various physiologic manipulations, including increasing the PaO2, have been associated with an increase in brain tissue oxygenation. Whether brain oxygenation-guided therapy results in improvement in outcomes is debatable. Retrospective studies suggest benefit, while prospective studies have shown a higher intensity of therapeutic interventions with no outcome differences. Data from high-quality randomized trials are necessary to determine if brain oxygenation-guided therapy is beneficial. An oxygen challenge, transient increase in FiO2 to 0.6 up to 1, to assess the responsiveness of the monitoring and ascertain the presence of technical malfunction, is an accepted practice. Poor prognosis is associated with low brain tissue oxygen values. Various physiologic manipulations, including increasing the arterial PO2, have been associated with an increase in brain tissue oxygenation. As described by Martini et al., however, whether or not brain oxygenation-guided therapy results in improvement in outcomes is debatable. Data from high-quality randomized trials are necessary to determine if brain oxygenation-guided therapy is beneficial. Brain tissue oxygenation monitoring has not yet become standard of care in traumatic brain injury. Oxygen Supplies in Disaster Management is by Blakeman and Branson. Mass casualty events and disasters, both natural and human-generated, occur frequently around the world and can generate scores of injured or ill victims in need of resources. Of the available medical supplies, oxygen remains the critical consumable resource in disaster management. 
Strategic management of oxygen supplies in disaster scenarios remains a priority. Hospitals have large supplies of liquid oxygen and a supply of compressed gas oxygen cylinders that allow several days of reserve, but a large influx of patients from a disaster can strain these resources. Most backup liquid oxygen supplies are attached to the main liquid supply system. In the event of damage to the main system, the reserve supply is rendered useless. The Strategical National Stockpile supplies medications, medical supplies, and equipment to disaster areas, but they do not contain oxygen. Contracted vendors can deliver oxygen to alternate care facilities in disaster areas in the form of concentrators, compressed gas cylinders, and liquid oxygen. Planning for oxygen needs following a disaster still presents a substantial challenge, but alternative care facilities have proven to be valuable in relieving pressure from the mass influx of patients into hospitals, especially for those on home oxygen who only require an electrical source to power their own oxygen concentrator. This paper addresses the important subject of oxygen supplies and disaster management. Most of us are accustomed to oxygen being readily available, but such may not be the case in the setting of a disaster. Planning for oxygen needs following a disaster is a substantial challenge. This relates not only to hospital care, but also to patients on home oxygen who require an electrical source to power their oxygen concentrators. Next is the paper, Chemical Oxygen Generation, by Kevin Ward and colleagues. While pressurized oxygen in tank form, as well as oxygen concentrators, are ubiquitous in civilian healthcare in developed countries for medical use, there are a number of settings where use of these oxygen delivery platforms is problematic. These settings include, but are not limited to, combat casualty care, and healthcare provided in extreme rural environments in developing countries. Furthermore, there are a number of settings where delivery of oxygen other than the pulmonary route to oxygenate tissues would be of value, including severe lung injury, airway obstruction, and others. This paper provides a brief overview of the previous and current attempts to utilize chemical oxygen production strategies to enhance systemic oxygenation. While promising, the routine use of chemically produced oxygen continues to pose significant engineering and physiologic challenges. Ward and colleagues describe chemical oxygen generation. The routine use of chemically produced oxygen poses important engineering and physiologic challenges. While the content of this paper is a bit futuristic, the approaches described here may very well enter our clinical armamentarium at some point in the future. paper of this conference is by Editor Emeritus David Pearson, and its title is Oxygen in Respiratory Care, a Personal Perspective from 40 Years in the Field. Oxygen is necessary for all aerobic life, and nothing is more important in respiratory care than its proper understanding, assessment, and administration. By the early 1970s, PaO2 had become the gold standard for clinically assessing oxygenation in the body. Since the 1980s, the measurement of arterial oxygen saturation by pulse oximetry has also been increasingly used as an adjunct to, but not a replacement for, PaO2. 
Despite the desirability of measuring tissue oxygenation directly, no reliable and clinically relevant such measure has emerged. The two areas in which oxygen has proven most important in respiratory care are long-term oxygen therapy and the management of potentially life-threatening hypoxemia in acute respiratory failure. That long-term oxygen therapy improves survival in appropriately selected patients with COPD was demonstrated by multi-center studies published more than 30 years ago, and their original selection criteria have so far not been improved upon. Severe hypoxemia and acute lung injury and ARDS can be improved by ventilation with PEEP, and also in many patients by various adjunctive techniques and alternative support strategies. However, the latter measures have not brought clear improvements in survival or other patient-relevant outcomes. In addition, the original goals of normalizing arterial oxygenation with high tidal volumes and lung distending pressures have required modification as appreciation for ventilator-related lung injury has emerged. High concentrations of inspired oxygen may play a role in such injury, but aggressive measures to reduce them in order to avoid oxygen toxicity, which dominated ventilator management in previous decades, have been tempered in the present era of lung protective ventilation. Although some additions and modifications have emerged, much of what we understand today about oxygen in respiratory care is owed to the pioneering work of Thomas L. Petty more than 40 years ago. It has been said that to know your future, you must know your past. With that in mind, Pearson provides a very nice personal perspective of oxygen in respiratory care based on his 40 years of clinical experience. Anyone with an interest in this subject matter will enjoy reading this paper. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues. Thank you.